0: filmmakers and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring the films of Reed Morano, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and in this week's episode I'll be talking about 2014's The Skeleton Twins, written by Craig Johnson and Mark Heyman, written or directed by Craig Johnson rather, and DP'd by Reed Moreno. But before um, I get into that, have a little bit of housekeeping. I men- mentioned on the last episode um, that the schedule was going to be a bit wonky for Reed Murano because of how we got a late start, and it would likely the episodes would likely bleed into February. That is still the case, but I've made a decision based on a few scheduling factors. The first one being that we started and then got the introductory episode out late. The other one being that. Um, the episodes have been posted a little bit later on Battleship Retention, which I imagine is due to the fact that David uh, is has recently returned from Sundance, so he was out there getting a lot of great coverage of a lot of uh, cool indie films and was just kind of not able to get the episode posted quickly. So we're actually a little bit later than I um, originally anticipated, which led me to think that due to those factors and the fact that I don't actually uh, yet have a plan in terms of a guest or topic for February, I figured, well, there's, you know, if you recall from the introductory episode, Sean had kind of given me a, a, an option of either making the last film, uh, I Think We're Alone Now, uh, the last film that Reed Murano has directed, or uh, the rhythm section, which is coming out um, shortly, or shortly, in in a few days, basically, and I figured, well, since the schedule has been pushed a bit and I don't have a plan for February and we can take up more um, real estate this way, I figured I'm going to actually take on the rhythm section as well as I think we're alone now and then uh, make that an extra episode so that, that way I actually have um, a plan for January and we continue kind of covering Reed Morano stuff so that way... Um, we can delve into more, because I'm certainly enjoying this stuff so far, as we'll get into when I start talking about the episode, and that way it kind of covers me for February, and then in March, um, I'll be taking um, a break just for the month, because that's the month that I'll be getting married, and frankly, I don't really want to have to worry about scheduling and editing and setting aside time for uh, this sort of stuff while I'm getting all that taken care of, so... Um that's the plan. February will uh, continue to be Read Morano month, and we are just going to um, extend it and cover her entire catalog. Um, so that's very exciting, I think, and hopefully you think the same thing. So let's get into Skeleton Twins, the only film in this uh, theme in this month where we where Morano is not the director, just as I said, only the, the DP. Um, and because of that, for the discussion, I kind of want to start with more general comments about the film itself. The writing, the directing, that sort of stuff, and then um, I'll get into the specifics of what I think Murano brings to the film and what kind of enhances it as, uh, as an experience and as a film. A film that I actually really, really enjoyed. Um, and the more I think about, it, the more I kind of really um, uh, appreciated. And I think it starts for me with the the script by Craig Johnson and Mark Heyman. It's it's a, it does a wonderful job of blending comedy and drama. Um, and not in the sense of sort of it, it's got kind of a mixed tonality, but just having them live together with each other, um, because it recognizes uh, that the film does that. It recognizes that these, um, in these intimate relationships, um, whether it's uh, uh, whether you're dating someone, whether you're married, whether it's you're very close with your parents, or in this particular situation, uh, very close siblings, the film recognizes that no one can hurt you or. Subsequently raise you up like that person that you're in the relationship with that person who knows you so well that person that you're so close to that person that you share So much of your life with no one is capable of hurting you like that person is but no one is capable of elating you and kind of Making you feel Loved and amazing like that person as well So it's got a lot of it's got emotional lows, but it's got emotional highs and they all make sense They're all organic and they're all very um in in a way, wonderful and inspiring to watch um, between um, Bill Hader as Milo and uh, Kristen Wiig as Maggie. Um, it's really interesting to see these two work together because uh, certainly the way that they act together, you you know that they know each other very well because of the time that they spend together on Saturday Night Live. So it brings some type of uh, some rapport that's already been established, some connection. You do just get the sense that they already do that they have been in a relationship for a long, long time, that they know each other, that there's history, because in, in the real world there is, and it works so well in bringing that history to them in, in, in this fictional setting as well. They really kind of, they understand each other in a way that none of these other characters do. Um, now, admittedly, the, this world, uh, or, or at least the, the geographic world that we're in, is sort of more Maggie's. This is where she lives. She lives with her husband Lance, played by Luke Wilson, and... Um, more people know her than, nor- than know Milo because Milo was out in L.A. trying to make it as an actor quite unsuccessfully. Um, and yet you you do just really see and feel that no one really knows Maggie like Milo. No one really knows Milo like Maggie. And they just have a relationship which is not able to be understood or duplicated by anyone else sort of who's within that, um, within that realm and from that sphere, basically. Um, and it, it, it's it's interesting because it leads to a certain dynamic, and especially when we get into the dynamic of um, Maggie and her relationship with Lance, sort of what she's hiding, what she is is feeling, but not really ignoring that she she can feel free to share with Milo, and the same thing, you know, Milo's relationship with Rich, played by Ty Burrell, um, well, actually, but which is one that he is not sharing, uh, which comes up as as a point of conflict later, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit, but... Um, I also really like that the script calls them out on their behavior. If you recall my episode from Meadowland, one of the problems that I had with it was how it grapples with and, and doesn't quite endorse, but also doesn't necessarily seem to condemn, um, Olivia Wilde's behavior when it came to the fact that she cheated and then, uh, let's be honest with ourselves, kidnapped a child near the end of it. And while that all did exist in this world of this all-consuming grief in which this character was was spiraling down, um, how close in terms of uh, of time and her emotional journey that came to this what was supposed to be this ending um, emotional profundity felt really, I don't want to say dishonest, but just kind of felt... Uh, not fully developed and not fully explored well enough and I had a real problem with that and as I said in that episode if you're going to have a character um that cheats or that it's involved in some type of um really kind of I don't want to say abhorrent but a, a certainly immoral kind of uh, relationship then you need to give us more to kind of connect with that person you need to give us more to kind of understand their motivations why they do this sort of thing and we need to feel like they're they're Behavior isn't being endorsed, and that is the case. I'd say in this film, we really do get the sense that um, not that the film is judging either Milo or Maggie, but that it certainly doesn't condone their actions, and that their uh, they, they that it, that it is not um, condoned. Basically, um, but, you know, Maggie obviously um, not just um does cheat on Lance, but has cheated on Lance. Um you get the sense that this is a pattern that she is doing this because she is certain she is not happy in her relationship with Lance. But the film makes it very clear that it's not because of anything that Lance did. It's not because Lance is a bad guy. Lance, as played by Luke Wilson, I think is actually quite wonderful. He's he's a very earnest character. He's the kind of guy where if you talk to him for, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes, you'd be like, okay, this guy is kind of annoying. I don't really want to hang out with him too much, but not because he's false, instead it's just because he's so earnest and his interests are not necessarily yours, and the things that he is enthusiastic about are not the things that you are enthusiastic about, it's just kind of uh, wires crossing, basically. Like You you, you don't understand why he's so enthusiastic, and, and, and you're never going to understand, but he's going to tell you about it in an enthusiastic manner anyway. He's so earnest and he's so kind of innocent and pure that it's it's sort of wonderful. And, and and to the film's credit, they don't play Lance up as a character of like, well, look, of course she could never love this guy. Look at how ridiculous he is. That's not the case. Instead, it, it is sort of cast as a relationship, which is quite loving, and which is um, quite healthy, at least in the sense of the, the groundwork is laid for a healthy relationship. But Maggie just doesn't want to be in it or Maggie is not equipped to be in it because of trauma and things that she has not worked on in her own life. And the film does not excuse her because of those things, but the film also does offer an explanation of why she is responding to this healthy situation in this way, but doesn't let her off the hook either. We are not happy with her behavior when she cheats. She is not happy with her behavior when she cheats. Milo is not happy with her behavior when she cheats, but it does offer up as a the, the phrase that I keep coming back to is this idea of hurt people hurt people, which is to say if you haven't kind of done the work on yourself, then the people around you, the world around you, is going to suffer because of that. And Maggie is very much a hurt person. I mean, in her opening scene, she the only thing which stops her from swallowing a handful of pills and committing suicide is the fact that she gets a call that her brother is in the hospital because he has attempted suicide. It's it's a bleak fucking way to start a movie, um, and just lays the groundwork as to these are the two players that we're going to be following, and this is the baggage that they're going to be bringing to this relationship with each other. So while I don't want to say we we certainly don't relate to Maggie, we understand why she is doing the things that she do, but we, we are not condoning it. We are instead kind of witnessing someone who is in... a a spiral that has been going on for years since, as the film seems to imply, since their father committed suicide when they were kids, a fact that they, or or, or a happening that they really did not deal with, that they've never really been able to move past, um, that they just haven't really uh, came to grips with. Similarly, when it comes to Milo, uh, the fact that the film calls out his relationship or at least the past relationship that he had with rich for what it was Um, when they first connected you know uh, or reconnected when he comes back in town and he and he, he goes to see rich at the bookstore you do get the sense of like okay there was a past with these people it was probably a romantic past and it seems like it didn't end very well and then you realize as the film goes along later like yeah not only was there a romantic past it was tremendously problematic because it happened when, Rich w- or when, uh, when Milo was a child. He was in high school, 15 years old, and Rich was his teacher. And that is not okay in so many forms. Um, and yet, because Milo is this hurt person, is this damaged person who is, um, has not dealt with his own trauma, kind of actually looks back on this relationship as something fondly, that's his POV, that is not the film's POV, but that is where he is coming from. He looks back at it as this time where there was certainty, where there was affection, where there was someone that cared about him, because his father died when he was 14 years old. Because his mother has been a, basically just a, a not great and not nurturing and not involved mother. So here was this character, this person who was looking for some type of fulfillment of an, a whole a of affection that wasn't there And he found it in his adult high school teacher. That is bad. And the film recognizes that it's bad. Maggie vocalizes later on in the film that it's bad. But Milo longs for it because Milo has has been having problems and problems that he has not dealt with and so once again this film explores the damage of these people recognizes where it comes from doesn't condone them for their actions but also doesn't cast them as these horrible wretched people Um, because there is some truth to them there is some heart to them there is tenderness to them specifically with each other um it's a, 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 one thing before I move on. I did want to get back to this idea of how I said the film acknowledges that no one can hurt you or raise you up uh, like these people that you care about. That that's exemplified really magnificently in two different scenes. The first one, the sense that no one can raise you up like the the this person in this relationship. I'm thinking of the scene where um, it's the sing along between Milo and Maggie to uh, Starship's um, "Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now." Where Milo comes back, I believe he's um, a little. Uh, is he? Is he? Is he drunk? No. Okay. He he uh, he came back the morning uh, or the day after having slept with Rich, which once again bad situation to be in. Slept with Rich, skipping work uh, with with uh, Lance, which is also bad. But he comes home to Maggie, who is. Um, also angry with herself because she has slipped up again and then slipped with her scuba teacher as played by uh, I didn't realize this until much later Boyd Holbrook, uh, which is interesting, but um, So they're both bringing this baggage into the situation Milo is, is elated about it because once again This is the way that he is dealing with this trauma and Maggie is kind of self-loathing about it because that's how she's dealing with it And she's very upset. He's elated He turns on Starships, nothing's going to stop us now. He starts lip syncing, and he's trying to bring her in, he's trying to bring her in, and it just really, like, it goes on for not such a long time, but the song goes on for long enough with her not participating that you just feel like this is starting to get a bit awkward. She's not going to dig this, she's not going to get involved with this until eventually um, when uh, the, the woman... Uh, chimes in like let him say we're crazy you don't care about that she finally starts kind of mouthing and then eventually she gets into it and they get up and they're dancing and they're singing this song together and you just kind of once again get this wonderful vibrant sense of connection and relationship that feels like this is something they've done before like there's a reason that Milo turned on this song there's a reason that he put this on because this meant something to them because this is something that they've done before and Lance comes by and he's kind of sitting in the doorway and he's smiling to himself and he's kind of like oh these people are crazy and walks out and it just it's a it's a scene of it's really uplifting and it's really inspiring and it's really heartfelt and tender and yet It's also interesting that it comes right after these two scenes of these people indulging in these things which are unhealthy for them and that they should not have indulged in. And then the idea of no one can hurt you like that person as well. Later on, near the end of Act 2, there's that confrontation between the two of them outside after Lance has found out that Maggie has been hiding birth control despite the fact that they're trying to have a family. And uh, he finds out because Lance or or, uh, Milo has kind of subtly laid the hints of, like, that she might be hiding something somewhere. Lance finds it. Him and Maggie have a have a confrontation. Then Maggie and Milo have a real fight outside, and um, it's just them trying to kind of uh, one-up each other until eventually Milo says something to the fact of, like, well, why don't you just, you know, maybe I should just fuck my problems away. And then she says, maybe you should, or maybe you should have cut deeper. And after that, it's just the hammer has fallen, and you just get the sense of, like, whoa, this is that comment that we can't really come back from, that neither of them can come back from. And both of them are just so hurt and damaged and coming and attacking each other from that, from that viewpoint of being damaged of being and wanting someone else to suffer for it or because of it, basically. Um, it's like I said, it's an emotional high and it's an emotional low and you see it borne out in this relationship, um, at different times, but with the same people from these fantastic performances. Um, And it's also what I think is interesting is the fact that we do have uh, the film flashing back to the various scenes with their father, once again, hinting that this is the source of the pain for all of them, is this person that they were very close with who, um, not just that they lost, but that they lost through suicide. Kind of the the implication sort of that these children are sort of, have lived under kind of a curse their entire life. Um, And and I think it's quite wonderful that at the end, um, when Milo comes in and saves... uh, saves Maggie from attempting to commit suicide again, but then realizing as she's down, weighted down at the bottom of the pool that she doesn't want to do this and he saves her. It, it, it's sort of a, an image or, or a theme of sort of um, being cleansed or, or almost being baptized, you know. Uh, they go down to the water and when they come out, they are together again. They are, um, they're, I don't want to say they're whole, but they're back together and they're on the road to recovery. They're on the road to recognition. They're on the road to healing. It's, it's quite a wonderful image. Um, and now I want to kind of shift and start talking specifically about the contributions that Murano brings to the film as a DP, because even though she didn't direct it, um, it still felt a lot like a film that she would eventually make. I know I've watched the second, but um, this would be before Metal Land, which would be the next thing that she would do. Um, it, it feels like a Reed Murano film, basically. Um, and what the, my first observation that kind of came out was that uh, as the film goes along... The cinematography seems to, I wrote the word down, normalize, um, but that doesn't imply that there's anything weird or, uh, or, or or overly draws attention to itself about the cinematography. But it just, it seems like visually the film uh, slowly transitions or shifts from kind of a, a depiction of hyper-reality to reality. Um, and I think that, uh, that that reveals itself in a couple of ways. The, the first time we kind of see it, um, and I'll, I'll post screenshots of both of these scenes onto the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page, so you can kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about. But when they're when Milo and Maggie are first um, talking to each other in the waiting room of the hospital, when um, uh, Milo was reading uh, Marley and Me, and there's that wonderful joke about. Uh, He's pretending like he doesn't know that the, that the dog dies at the end. The way that the that fi- that scene is shot is quite interesting and sort of unlike how the rest of the film is shot. The colors are very kind of saturated. I, I won't say that that things are bright, but the colors are, are very saturated. The the green in Maggie's shirt and and the kind of the red in her hair. And there's almost a bit of a soft glow around her when she is when you see at least the one shot of her standing in the doorway asking if you know he wants to kind of move in with her and Lance for a little bit. It uh it, it's it's very like I said it's very soft. Um, there's almost a um you almost kind of get the sense of a, a, of the subtle implication of like this is not real or this is not reality. The softness of it, the brightness of it. Um, used to depict the reunion of these two siblings that hadn't talked for a little bit. The implication to me is that this is not reality. This is not who they actually are. This is not how life is actually for the both of them. It's um it's not real, like I said. Um now contrast that with um the confrontation back in uh at the end of Act Two where they're both kind of angry at each other. It's shot outside. It's in nature. But the the lighting there is um it's very flat lighting. There's no shadows, but there's also no, uh, nothing that's too bright either. There's just, you see everything, everything is in focus. The colors are kind of muted a little bit and you just get the sense of it being sort of a gray fall day in which, um, Rain could break at any moment, but also sunlight could break at any moment, but basically it it doesn't have a documentary feel to it necessarily, but you do kind of get the, more of the visual sense that the camera was just kind of turned on and pointed at the both of them, and what, what, what they're doing is they're just capturing what it is, who they are, and what's actually happening in front of the camera. Um, and this, is sense, gives me the implication of that the, these two are now, they're revealed to each other. This is who they actually are. This is emotional uh, uh, emotional rawness, basically. Um, and so it's, in, it's, neither of these scenes are really shot in an overly stylistic way that call attention to themselves. But if you see the two of them compared and contrasted with each other, you do see how things have changed. You do see how um, color temperature has changed a little bit, how exposure has changed a little bit, and... Um, and just how the lighting has been manipulated a little bit to kind of subtly imply what the emotional state is are these two characters. It's moving, like I said, from hyper-reality, from kind of a, an exaggerated version of what is going on in their lives, in real life, to more of a naturalistic reality, um, which is something that we talked about in the introductory episode, something that we talked about in Metal Land, which is something that I know we're going to be talking about and I think we're alone now as well. It's just it's, it's, a, it's a visual transition that also kind of that is indicative of the emotional transition and the journey that these characters have been going on. Um, th- this is also where I, I in this film was where I noticed a lot of this idea that Sean mentioned of sort of how the light is burning people almost. Um, how they're when they're standing by windows or, or if they're inside and there's a, a look outside, the light is so bright. The light is so kind of overexposed that it sort of blows out um, the picture that we're looking at. Um, the very first time we're introduced to this is almost right away, in which shortly before um, uh, Milo tries to commit suicide, there's a, a shot of him, in which he's he's lit by a window behind him, and his 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 face is almost kind of ashen gray, and with this light kind of burning him, it, it almost he seems almost kind of like a zombie, like The Walking Dead, basically. Um, and and when we when I at least saw this kind of stuff, when I saw this recurring in the film. What it implied to me was just the sense of these people who are unprepared because visually or, or kind of literally, it looks like that they're not prepared to go outside. And why would they be? It seems like the light is so all-consuming, is so overwhelming. If they go outside, they're going to get burned. If they go outside, they are, they're not equipped for the light that they're going to be walking into, and the implication for me is that these people are not prepared to deal with the reality of their life. Basically, that they're scared, that they're not equipped to kind of be real, and that was that was a really interesting thing uh, for me. And, and the the final thing that I really kind of noticed was uh, a general lack of handheld camera work. <clears throat> there's not a a complete lack of it, but there's a, a it seems like it's only implemented in emotionally important scenes. And uh, if I am wrong about this, if you've noticed uh, other scenes in which it happened or that I was misremembering that I wrote down, please do uh, reach out to me because I want to believe that I uh, am smarter than I might actually be. But as far as I can tell, there's only four scenes or sequences in this film in which handheld camera work is utilized. Um, I really actually find it fascinating that for the most part, this film is kind of locked down uh, static kind of tripod work or... um, uh, why am I blanking on the term? Um, man. cam work, that's it. Um, but, uh, in, in terms of kind of, uh, with the, the camera being off a tripod and maybe on a handheld rig and, and kind of being a little bit shaky and unstable, we're not talking about Paul Greengrass stuff here, but in terms of, um, uh, indicating that emotionally that things are a little bit rockier it seemed like it only happened in four different instances the first one is the mother's arrival which really kind of upsets and offsets both maggie and milo as we find out this is a mother who was not really involved who's not very supportive whose presence they really sort of loathe so her introduction into their life shortly after uh you know what has happened to milo and while they're both kind of on the road to repairing their relationship with each other kind of this bombshell is dropped and, the, and this mother kind of comes in and um we 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 do get the sense of of what emotional trauma has still not been settled in this family's relationship with each other the second time is the musical sequence when they're lip-syncing to nothing's going to stop us now and when they're a lot more emotionally freed when they're kind of um Jumping back into this rapport and this connection that they used to have and the camera by being kind of untethered um, is sort of reveling in that and sort of celebrating in that and sort of um, observing them as they are, or even possibly as they used to be. And this is a version of them kind of getting back to that. Um, the other time is the argument that they have, and, and this was the only one that I wasn't entirely sure about the next day when I was taking notes. Um, I I seem to remember that, I vaguely remember sort of it being a handheld uh, thing, if nothing else, because it starts out with them stepping outside the house and then kind of stopping and, and having a, a fight with each other. And it it seems like, um, and maybe my memory has projected onto this moment in the sense of, well, this would be the perfect time for it to be a handheld shot in which it is emotionally raw, in which they are kind of attacking each other, in which the, the momentum that they had been building up has now kind of been derailed and we're sort of reeling from that. That, that seems like it would be a great time to have um, the sequence shot handheld, but maybe it's not, and I'm misremembering that, and certainly if, if I am incorrect in that, please feel free to, to, to point it out. And then the other time, which I think is probably the most important is not even a sequence, but certain different just shots and and sporadic scenes, are the flashbacks of them with their father. And those scenes are also the ones where they they have that same kind of dreamlike hyper real lighting. it's It's bright. The colors are soft. There's almost kind of a halcyon um, uh, uh, kind of glow to this because it is looking back on something fondly and the fact that the camera is handheld in this moment and like I said this emotionally important moment just kind of gives it almost sort of a freedom um, when there was no structure when there was no plan when the when these characters didn't have to get back on some type of emotional development track they were just kind of spinning around in the freedom of this relationship that they had with this loving parent um, in this uh, wonderful healthy family um, so I think it's interesting that um, in terms of uh, where this detached or, or kind of, um, uh, yeah, this this detached kind of camera work starts in, chronologically, it started in the past. It started in the past in the sense of freedom and sort of a real real safety. And yet every time we sort of return to it in the present time, it's when something is being upset when the plan is sort of um being or, or or the boat's kind of being rocked, if you will, it's almost as though this stiffness this uh this very structured camera work in this film is sort of um something that the characters have built up for themselves in the sense of like this is my life now, but it, it's it's an illusion basically. And whenever we get to these emotional heavy scenes that illusion becomes clear and we are kind of untethered from that um, but that's a that's that's what I think that's a kind of a summary of what I think Murano brings to this film as a, as a DP um, highlighting uh, as, if, as if this wasn't already obvious just from you know seeing the work of um, Deacons or anyone else who is a very talented director of photography that they bring something equally as important to the film and that uh, their role um, is arguably equally as important as the director in the sense of trying to tell this visual story and trying to relay moods and atmosphere and all this kind of stuff through uh, the camera because it is of course a very visual medium but um easy enough to get uh to to watch the film again if you, if you are curious to do so it is free uh to stream on both on uh Hulu on Prime and on um Epix that remember that spell with an x and then uh if you want to rent it or purchase it it's available in Deep breath here. Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, Voodoo, Redbox, Fandango Now, and the Microsoft Store. So it is ever-present if you want to um, um, revisit uh, The Skeleton Twins, which was really, like I said, a film that I um, really quite enjoyed. So um, if you want to get in touch with me, it's always easy enough to do so. You can email me at badly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth, or you can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly and chime in on the comments field at either com or dot com, or on the Facebook page where, once again, I will be posting the screenshots from those two sequences that I talked about so you can just kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about, where the, the visual journey of this film also has kind of uh, imitates the emotional journey as well. So that does it for uh, the Skeleton Twins. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering Reed Morano's last directorial feature. I think we're alone now and hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.